0: Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, we practitioner and instructor, Matthew Dusiknot. I was assaulted in the parking lot of a suburban Philadelphia Wawa on the last day of my junior year in high school. One minute, I was eating cherry licorice in the backseat of my friend, Matt's tan four-door Volkswagen Rabbit, The next, I was on the pavement, spitting pints of briny, metallic-tasting blood from my mouth. My jaw was dislocated and broken in two places. I spent three nights at the hospital and the rest of that summer mumbling through wires before returning to my senior year as if nothing had happened. Today's guest, Matthew Toussignat, was driving that tan Volkswagen. Matthew holds degrees from Harvard University and the California Institute of Integral Studies. As a certified BREMA practitioner and instructor, Matt combines hands-on bodywork with practical psychology to connect people to their unique potential as human beings. We've been best friends for more than 30 years, two-fifths of a group of guys who still talk nearly every day and still get together occasionally. Deegs is in LA, Sib's in New Mexico, John and I live near Philly, and Toos, as we call him, is up near New Hope. A few years before I left New York City and well before I left Facebook, I asked Matt to meet me in Valley Forge, a national park just down the hill from my childhood home, and a few streams west of Matt's for a hike. I wanted to ask Matt what he remembered of that night to help me begin to piece together an experience I'd long preferred to forget. Matt didn't remember much. It happened quickly and it was dark. The assailant, a guy from our high school, was gone before I even got up off the pavement or Matt got out of the car. Matt and I have walked, jogged, and hiked those trails every few months for the last five years. Our favorite is one that traverses two modest hills, mounts joy and misery, separated by a shallow, rocky stream. On those early hikes, Tooth helped me begin to understand something I thought I knew intellectually, but hadn't yet felt for myself. The body keeps the score. We're sentient creatures, sure, but there's more to the human experience than our frontal lobe, executive function, or logic would have us believe. And moreover, our most difficult and profound experiences are imprinted on our bodies, not just in our memories, but deep in the tissue of our muscles, in the scars on our skin and the strands of our DNA. Despite Western science, medicine, and culture's best efforts, the body is experiencing together with the mind. And to truly be in touch with ourselves and with each other, we need to be present in our minds and our bodies. Fred Rogers understood. He knew his body. He famously weighed 143 pounds sign language for I love you, his entire life. He swam every morning, which is how he and my mom met there on Nantucket. And he made time to reflect every day. Toos begins this episode in the woods behind his backyard. He tells us how he drove himself to graduate at the top of his class, an All-American lacrosse player and ROTC scholar with a full ride to Harvard. And how a year later, He left the Ivy Leagues to find himself on a tiny island in the Mediterranean. We'll learn how he found Rima, what it is, and what it can tell us about ourselves, our place in the world, and our responsibility to both.
1: Valley Stream ran ran behind the house, which is the stream that runs all the way into the park. Runs that whole valley. A lot of time outside, actually, with friends roaming around the woods and the creeks. A lot of the area surrounding that neighborhood was undeveloped at the time. But we would just go on these hikes or whatever. Just walks into the woods, play in the creeks. I mean, we would hike through some of these old railroad tunnels. Just crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, plenty of sports Playing street hockey, listening to Van Halen and ACDC. Can you share like a
0: seminal childhood experience, something that's really fresh that might connect to how you think of yourself
1: today? The one that really stands out was in sixth grade, I had this teacher who I didn't like. He was creepy. I wasn't comfortable around him. One day we had an assembly. And I was in the front row, I think having fun, just being a, a six grade oh boy. boy, probably, yeah. you know, doing it. And yeah. he, he called me back to sit next to him. And I guess at this point I had had enough and I was yeah. upset. I asked to see the principal and he said, well, he's not available right now. And I did not want to sit next to him. I just decided I was going to take matters into my own hands. And I said, you know, I really need to use the bathroom. Would that be okay? He said, sure. I walked out of the assembly area, took a left down the hallway, and then walked right out the back doors. Walked across the grass and decided how I was gonna make my getaway. Wound through some neighborhoods, crossed the street, and then hid out in these woods. And I remember actually that next day being very sort of unafraid of expressing myself. Not that I even knew what it was all about. And then I was suspended from school for a day. That was my punishment.
0: Did you feel in essence, just plain old unsafe with the dude?
1: I think I did. I think at some instinctive level, I just felt like he was, his energy wasn't right. Either he was being affectionate in some way, or favoring me in some way, it didn't feel right to me. And I actually looking back was, I'm quite proud of myself, even though it was dangerous in some ways and risky, my voice was heard.
0: As I have these kinds of conversations with people, um, and you learn about the traumas or challenges or contexts or dynamics that they experience and how those later manifest, I'm really struck how much of it is just, do I feel safe? And that can manifest in so many different metrics, right? Or so many different uh, experiences in your body or in your mind. But there's two ways to play that. Three, I guess, fight, flight, or freeze. And you chose flight. Most of the time, people get stuck. From a narrative standpoint, is it seminal to you because of that agency? Because something in you
1: rose to say, mm I can change this myself. I would say that whole thing had to be moderated a little bit to be really how I wish to behave. But at that point in time, I was quite proud of myself that I was able sure, to- Sure, of course. Just, yeah, of course. Of you course know, of not course. freeze, not collapse. I'm going to actually take action here.
0: Civil disobedience.
1: Little civil disobedience. and I, Looking at the trajectory of my life, I think in many ways, I just have never been someone who wants to be told what to do.
0: You've been surrounded by some, at least perceivably rigid contexts between your folks who are lovely, but are military. Like, aren't they like generals or something crazy? My father was close. That kind of structure was a part of their lives and ergo was going to make it into yours, even if they're compassionate, thoughtful people, which was my experience. But I would add then an institution like Harvard, which is full of social codes and Unwritten rules, as well as all kinds of very firm boundaries about this is what you do, this is what you don't do. So it's interesting that you still banged up against some of those rigid structures before it seems like you kind of were like out of those
1: woods. That discipline, they all have a certain level of discipline. Mm. I took a lot of that on, which I played out throughout my entire life. I think a lot of what I've achieved and what i've really found that's meaningful has come from that sense of perseverance and discipline and just work ethic but i've pushed up against to your point a lot of structures that are very set that's been growthful it's also been difficult i mean going to an ivy league institution was at the beginning was just disastrous for me very difficult maybe the most unhappy year of my life was probably that freshman year in college i just was i mean i missed the cohesiveness of my high school friendships. I was just yeah. in, in this extremely elitist institution, a lot of prep school people, and st- people who were extremely intelligent and like knew what they wanted to do. And I was not, not that way really. I thought I did, but I started to realize, oh, I don't really know. What am I supposed to do right now? Yeah. I followed all the steps up to this point, and now what?
0: How did you experience? You know, through the lens of what you know now, how did you experience life in terms of mind, body and feeling when you were like, you know, 15, 16, 18, when we were kids?
1: You know, in the early part of life, our essential nature is still on the surface. It's not covered up. But then as we go through that middle part of life, which is really the formation of the personality, we we lose track with that to some degree, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think I always had this interest in something more, something greater, mm, but right. I didn't really know how to express it. I, I was affected by things, books, and people along the way that I felt like were also interested in those kind of things, but I don't know if we anybody really knew that at the time. Yeah. And although there's basically three types of humans— intellectual type, the emotional type, the physical type, even though I really feel like in many ways I was more that physical type. Right. Which sounds kind of, when I first kind of recognized that, I felt a little bit insulted because I felt like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm such an intelligent person. I'm such a sensitive person. It doesn't really mean those those things aren't components. Right. But I think I put a lot of energy into the physical. That was a big source of grounding for me, maybe even identity, safety. Yeah. And in a way it served me well, but looking back in a way, I feel like it also kind of was a cover-up a little bit because I didn't know how to deal with some of those more sensitive parts of life, of myself, of my experience. And I was a very perceptive person in some ways, so perceptive that I felt like I just had to hide that. It was, I didn't know what to do with that stuff many times, you know, Mm -hmm. it may even tie back to that early experience. There's just something I picked up on that wasn't right. And I knew it. And I acted on it. We also went to church every Sunday. It was a big part of my upbringing. Uh, Right. Yeah, of course. Right. And there was something about the quiet of the church Uh and just the energy of that whole thing that affected me and spoke to me, even though, of course, religion is full of so many (laughs) problems, you know. Deep breath, yeah. Yeah, just, I mean, you know, I, I get it. At the same time, there's something in it that's, that's truthful, you know, that sure. speaks yeah. to something much greater. I really was searching.
0: The more I know about the body now, the more I'm moving through my own experiences. I'm just finding all kinds of stuff literally locked away in body parts, yes. <laughs> you know, and there's just all kinds of signals coming through our body that we generally are not paying any attention to because we're using the processor up here. And so, twice now, I've heard you talk about early indications that something was amiss in a place that wasn't solely intellect.
1: And that's amazing. Yeah. And this is actually one of the, the difficulties that we're running into as a species right now.
0: Mm. I mean,
1: little by little, as we've separated ourselves from the body and the earth and gone more into the mind, one of the consequences is that we've divorced ourselves unknowingly from the instinctive wisdom that's part of the body. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean you see the animals they they have to have that. That's that's their survival. But we in many ways we don't know what to do. We've overridden that that instinctive wisdom with the mind. What we're supposed to do, what we're told to do, what society yeah. says to do, how to behave. To a large extent has been to our detriment. Looking back now, from what you said, I'm I'm grateful that I was in touch with that and I trusted that enough because in some ways it was survival. Yeah. You know, maybe not in the most graphic way, but it was like the seeds of something that I would return to later and fine-tune. It was raw.
0: When you were double lettering and ROTCing and crushing the SATs and getting straight A's and applying to the Ivy Leagues, like <laughs> What, what did you think was going to happen next? And also, like, what was the experience in your body? Were you feeling calm? Were you
1: on edge? I didn't even know it was going to come next, right? I just knew that yeah, yeah. I needed to strive for the, the best that I could be. That somehow that that would take me wherever mm. I needed to go. That became clear in that freshman year of college because I was like, Okay, here we are.
0: Now what are you going to do?
1: Yeah. And then I remember being very sure of myself as a senior, you know, very confident in ways. And I think the, the difficulty was when I actually got the whole thing, Harvard, ROTC scholarship, lacrosse. I was like, well, now what? Yeah. Now what do I do? I I got everything I strove for. But like, is this
0: really what I want? But it sounds like you had a not dissimilar year than I did. I just was squirrely
1: the whole time. I just wanted out. How did you manage through that? A couple different ways, you know, probably the, the unhealthy way was partying. Yeah. You know, just kind of like Me too. forget. Numb. Numb, you know. And the flip side was, you know, socializing. But really, one way was putting my nose to the grindstone, like I typically did. Yeah. And, you know, I would, seclude myself and just work on school. And then the other way was being physical, you know? Mm. And although those were all, for me, normal outlets, there was still something missing. Right. And I found myself quite lonely. And even though I had friends and- Even though I came to visit occasionally. Right. And I, I knew I my parents loved me and I was supported. There was just this discontent mm. and this uncertainty about- what do I do? And so looking back now, I remember there was this class I took on Michelangelo and there was something about that class that just touched me. I don't know. It was almost like a past life thing, you know, huh. but it was also like my roots, my Italian roots. I started to that yeah. search kind of was like, well, maybe if I go towards my roots where I'm from, if I, uh, if I go that direction, yeah, maybe I can find meaning there, which is why after, after my sophomore year, I took a year off. I took a gap year, which at that point, yeah. people didn't really do. Yeah, totally. And I was like, I'm going to go to Italy for the year. And learn Italian and immerse myself in the culture. And my mom was all about it. But it was kind of just a like a shot in the dark. Something mm-hmm. that would that would bring more meaning in. But again, your intuition must have led you, right?
0: Because that idea had to come from somewhere. Like... Nobody says, you know what, Matthew, I think you might benefit from a year off and you should go dig it. You know, like that's not the kind of guidance one's generally given, particularly in 1990, you know, at Harvard. Well, I was a good salesperson. (laughs) Not only did you have that agency and that resilience or that get up and go, but you had some vision about, and you didn't know why probably, right? You didn't fully get what you were doing. You just intuitively were like, I think this is the right thing to do now.
1: And as we're talking, I'm, I'm remembering other experiences in my life, which is interesting, where I, quote, unquote, left something. Mm, yep. One is the East Coast. One is also a marriage, right? Interesting. I've never actually thought about this this way. All of them very difficult decisions. Walking out of elementary school was difficult. Leaving college also, in some ways, to go to a foreign country was also challenging. but. What you said, I think there's a lot to it. There was something in me that knew that wasn't mind or a, a mental process, but was more at the gut level. Yep. You need to do this. It doesn't necessarily make sense. It was about listening to something deeper. Ah, uh, right. Right. Yeah. And what did you find there? And what did you resolve to do next? Well, I was changed yeah. in many ways. And I and kind of maybe for the first time fell in love in Italy.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, this woman I met, that was a new experience for me, really. I also worked through a lot of sadness and fear there. So I think I came back Mm -hmm. a changed person with a new direction in life, which I had shed some of that old me. Kind of amazing to look at it that way. But I was lighter, a little Mm -hmm. bit looser. I had dropped the military thing. I matured a lot. And I came back and that was the year. That, that year I came back, I loved college. I had a great time. I got good grades. I changed my friends. I gravitated towards people that were playing music, who were dancing, who were smoking grass. Yeah. <laughs> who were just kind of artsy. I had a much more diverse group of friends in terms of ethnicity and race. Yeah. And I really delved into my interest more, like what I was really into. And I also spoke Italian pretty much
0: fluently. You said something about you let go of a lot of sadness and fear. Do you remember any conscious thought about that? Or was it because you took such a risk? I
1: showed up in Italy. I didn't know anybody. I'm in a foreign country. I don't know anybody. I've got a job with somebody I kind of know. I'm living in a place all by myself. I'm crying myself to sleep at night pretty much every night, right? Yeah, yeah. You're scared and you're lonesome. I'm scared and I'm lonesome. And then little by little, I crawl out of that ditch, right? I put up an ad. I find a roommate. I start to network with friends. I reach out to people. This friend of mine takes me to his family's home over the weekend. I meet their friends. I get a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And I start to actually enjoy myself. And actually, based on how I look and I really studied the accents of where I lived, I could blend in. Like I was an Italian, as far as anybody knew. They couldn't yeah. figure out where I was from, almost like. I was transformed. It was a different identity. That old driven sports ROTC guy kind of kind of died. And then this, this new me emerged, yeah. which was, I had shed a skin basically. I wasn't done, but I had shed a skin. How did you end up going to Berkeley? I went to Italy for a year, came back to Harvard for a year, which would have been my senior year. A lot of my friends graduated. The next year, I went back to Italy. I went to the University of Bologna and went to Italian University for a year, which was amazing in its own right. And I had to come back to Harvard for a semester to write my thesis. When that was done, I had this the whole, the spring, and I worked actually with Sibby's Aunt Greta at the Green Cafe in Bethlehem. I was living at my parents' uh. house, right? And it was after that that my parents divorced that summer. Mm. My brother finished college. And we said, you know what? Let's leave. Let's yeah. let's let's get out of here. Another another leaving, right? Yeah. And we packed up the Oldsmobile. Mark and I with pretty much half the car was our stereo and our speakers, and we just <laughs> we made a road trip. We left in November and we headed south. We were both kind of at a junction in our life, and then our parents were split up. And I think we took that as an opportunity to take a new course in life. Yeah. So I'm in Berkeley. Catherine Brown is a student at UC Berkeley. Catherine Brown is studying brema. And so because she knew we were there, she said, you know, come on over and have a meal. And she said, I'm doing this thing called brema. Do you want to receive some brema? Hmm. I mean, because like a sister, you know? I mean, I just figured, yeah, sure, yeah. why not? You know, I had never gotten a massage ever. I had never received any body work. Yeah, we're, but that I just that wasn't
0: a thing, was it?
1: Yeah. That was not a thing for us growing up, you know? Not something that we did. She said, just lay down and you know, close your eyes. And she was started to give me a treatment. And all I really remember, really, is this blue light. Mm. When she had her hands over my eyes and I can still see it. She finished and I thought, I've never had that experience quite like that before. When I switched my graduate program from divinity school to somatic psychology, one of the requirements for the program to graduate was you had to be certified in a hands-on modality. And then I remembered, what was that Brema thing? Yeah. I lived pretty close to the Brema Center. I rode my bike up there. And immediately when I walked in, I had this familiarity with the place. Yeah, It smelled right. The body knows. Yeah. It just looked right. There was something like visceral about it. Yeah. Again, that instinctive just sense. And I was like, this is kind of strange because this doesn't happen that often in life where you just have a knowing. And this woman walked out and she was just very friendly and warm. And I thought, okay, this is enough for me to say, I'll take a class.
0: You knew well enough to be specifically focused on somatics versus just psychology. So somehow you already knew that the body was
1: part of the equation, which is fairly ahead of the game. Well, I was, and it was kind of fortuitous because I think I had been given a gift many years earlier that... Mm by the grace of existence I needed to receive at that point in time to direct my life properly. I was standing in that sunroom at the Malvern house, Mm. the room that the deck surrounds. It was before I went to California, I had just become very prayerful because I was kind of uncertain about what was going to lie ahead. So I was standing in that room one day and I was just praying, not, not so much verbally, but for some guidance or something to show me what would come next. And what I remember was something, it was as if something touched me from the inside, like touched the back Mm. of my heart. And there was a little flash of energy and light. And it was like something opened for a moment or two. And I had a couple tears, but it wasn't so much I was sad. It was just, I just felt what that was in a cathartic way. And the insight that I had that moment was, whatever this is, if this can be experienced by yourself and other people, then everything will be okay.
0: Mm.
1: And it was very much something that came to me in my body. Even though it was very momentary, it was undeniable. And so I think from that moment on, I knew there's something about the body and the body as an instrument or something that can receive the energy that I need to study and be involved with. But I had no idea where to find that. But in Brima, I found exactly what I was looking for.
0: For the uninitiated, like myself, even though I've been peppering you with questions for five years, what is Brima? <laughs> one thing I love about
1: Brima is it's one of those things that's very hard to define. Which is one yeah. wonderful thing about it because brema is really an expression of the relationship between the one and the many. So there's many dimensions to brema. And that's why I love it. That's why I find it so effective in working with people because you can enter at many different levels. One way of describing brema is it's the activity of the body when I am present. Mm. One way of talking about brema is it's a way of actualizing our potential as human beings. Sometimes it's called the art of being present. But what it really is, is a path of self-understanding. Mm. It's in some ways so, so simple. What it basically says is we have evolved over millions of years to have three centers and those three centers they need to work in harmony they don't work in harmony but they have the potential to work in harmony the mind the body and the feelings and brima is really an incredible thing because what it's saying is although we tend to think that we can somehow change our thoughts or change our feelings really the change that's possible for us comes through the body and what the body can receive. So the body is so central because the body isn't really the physical instrument only it's a tool, which when used and developed can receive conscious energy, life energy directly so that when we become unified in ourself, then we can experience being unified with life. So there's a lot to it, you know. There's a lot to Brima.
0: How would one practice it and how would you instruct one and or
1: engage with another person's in the context of Brima? Really, the practice of Brima is informed by the nine principles of harmony. And although these nine principles, they're inherent to Brima and the practice of Brima, they're universal. Yeah. So... There's a number of ways to enter into the practice of brima. For some people, the body work is the way they enter in, learning how to do it and receiving it. And that's, I would say, an essential part of what brima is because even though there's a self-brima you can do with on yourself and there's a whole practice of body center meditation, the way that brima looks at us is we're earth, but we're like dry, parched earth because we haven't tended to the body really at all in the way it's meant to be tended to, right? So then even if I have the best water and the most nutrient-dense compost, if I spread that on dry parched soil, it just runs off. It can't absorb it. So you have to do a lot with the body to loosen it up, to support it, to become able to actually absorb and take in those nutrients that it needs. So the body work is important. The self-brima is a wonderful practice, but it can be, for some people at the beginning, can be a little more challenging to relate to. But the body work is something that I haven't met many people who didn't enjoy it and find it both relaxing, but also decrystallizing, which it allows, allows somebody to experience What's taking place moment after moment, which is life energy is flowing through the body. This is every moment of life. You and I have no no control over that. We may not experience it, right? But if we didn't have that experience taking place, we wouldn't be alive right now in this moment to mm. talk to each other either.
0: In terms of what I call integrating mind, body, feelings, what I think you called wholeness, in what ways does Western medicine contemporary culture, make that challenging, difficult? In what ways does it not, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a huge, huge subject, right? Because one of the things that differentiates us from all the other creatures on this planet is the mind. And the mind, do not get me wrong, is an incredible, powerful tool. Unfortunately, the mind doesn't know that on its own, it only creates Confusion and misunderstanding, and it believes if it thinks more that somehow it's going to arrive at some point of clarity or understanding. <laughs> but and that's kind of the joke. I don't know I, why that makes me laugh. That's just I'm, so great. Like I'm so happy it makes just you laugh faster. Right. Well, it's, yeah. It's, a total, it's funny. Right. Like just it's hilarious. Faster. Right. It's hilarious. Right. Yeah. So the problem is. The mind takes itself to be separate from life, but life exists in unity. So how much am I going to mm. understand about the nature of life or existence when I only have a very small part of it I'm looking at? This is the problem with Western medicine. In their own domain, they they do a lot of amazing things. But in terms of having a comprehensive understanding of health, of dis-ease, of wholeness, mm-hmm. It's not possible.
0: The way you say disease always lands with me, but it just landed even harder because that's what that babysitter was. That's what that teacher was. It's disease.
1: The body is not at ease. We are not at ease. The Western medical model thinks its purpose is to eradicate disease. ease yeah. The problem with that inherently is the function of disease is to increase health and vitality. By drawing
0: attention or by sort of signaling that there's something that requires some
1: awareness, attention, and intention, sort of? That's one aspect of it for sure, right? And so there are other medical systems that they try to listen to that voice and pay attention to it, and they try to really hear what it's saying because they know it's communicating something that's important about what's needed for health. On the other side, the function of disease is it eventually takes care of everything that's not healthy. What it leaves is the healthy and the strong. And this is one of the most challenging things for the human being right now, because if we don't come to an understanding of how to work with disease, there's no way we're ever going to experience health. The two go hand in hand. Because we live in that state of dis-ease. That's our... You know, this is the tension we have. Once we got ourselves separated, that's the beginning of disease. It's these two things that we're always struggling with in this life we live. And we think our job is to get rid of one and have more of the other. But there's something else that's meant to take place. And that's not something that's part of Western medicine. That's not part of society. Interesting or oddly enough, that's the very thing that the Buddha said, right? So the Buddha, whether you're Buddhist or not, whatever you believe, at some level, this person came to a very clear insight. They call it enlightenment. Let's just say a deeper understanding of life. The first thing that he says is life is suffering. Life is Mm, mm, mm dis-ease. Why does he say Mm -hmm. that? What's the purpose of that? What is he referring to? Did he miss something? (laughs) Or is he just telling us, here is the nature of the school you're in. Let's get clear on where we are. And if we can be clear on that, then from there we can build a pathway to freedom or to health or to meaningful life. And for me, that's what he was talking about. So I don't want to get rid of disease. I want to use that. Right. So if the mind and the genesis of the mind introduced separation which was the purpose, right? And separation doesn't even really exist. There is nothing that's separated. Everything's part Mm. of one whole integrated, unified existence, right? So then if you and I want to understand the nature of existence, we can't understand it from separation. Doesn't matter how hard we try. Mm, Doesn't matter how smart you are, how many degrees you have, And so then the question becomes, how do I get access? Can I get access? Is it possible to a level of intelligence that doesn't function in separation, but functions in unity? Mm. That's the quest for the human being in terms of our evolution and our development. The hard part about that, right, is the mind, which has become like the king or the queen, it's in charge of everything, Why does it wanna humble itself when it thinks it's so great? What's the motivation Mm. for that, right? (laughs) Because the next stage for the mind from its uh, intoxicated reverie in itself, it's egocentric, (laughs) narcissistic binge, right? Is to let go of everything it knows and register body breathes. Body has weight, body has a facial expression. The evolutionary step the mind has to take that's very humiliating for it is it just has to function without describing. And that's a tough sell. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're that great, why would you want to debase yourself to that level of functioning? And that's exactly what's in our way. I will say this for the record because it's important if anybody's listening, right? Is that's not the destination. That's the narrow gate that Christ talks about actually, right? That leads to what we're looking for. The mind, as it begins to develop further, which when the feelings come in, now the mind and the body and the feelings are together, then that mind has another potential that's given to it, but only when it's in that state, which is the receptive state. The mind has incredible potential, but it has to go through that process. We've been led to believe that the mind will solve everything for us in due time. But let's just, for the, for the swing of thought, what if that were an impossibility? And that that was a pretty much a, an abdication of our potential as being humans. Then we have to come back to the body because the body is the earth and the earth is actually the point of entry to a whole different relationship with life.
0: My sense is that there's a movement broadly towards wellness and specifically this understanding of the body being a critical part of our very experience. What have you seen in your time in this space and what have you experienced
1: specifically through the pandemic? I guess the most disturbing and, and disheartening thing is the polarization I've been seeing that caught me totally off guard in terms of what this health issue has done to people, that's been kind of incredible. And I, and I, it's really brought to light some fundamental differences about what, what health is and how we can support health in the collective. If you toss out religion, if you toss out science, if you just get back to the immediacy of our experience, we're surrounded by the natural world. It's been mythologized and deified and vilified. But the fact of the matter is there's this thing that we're part of, that we're born out of. Yeah. That's the natural world. I mean, I I mean, I don't think it's debatable. And I can't help but look at like, well, how does nature work? And how do I take myself to think that I could somehow develop my potential separated from nature or as a gradual conquest of it? Does that really make sense or is it just flat out hubris? And so I think what I've been noticing is what nature does is uncompromisingly, it supports health, does not support weakness. And that's going to be the toughest quandary for the human being is how are we going to define ourselves in the centuries that come if we're still here? By harmonizing ourselves with that fundamental model that nature provides for us in a compassionate and a conscientious and a conscious way that lets us let go of our individuality, which is false, and develops a collective experience that's based on those fundamental principles that guide everything that exists. This is our future if we're going to have one.
0: The sort of archetypal associations with the sort of cognoscenti, or the sort of let's say the WASPy Northeast elite that generally speaking run Washington—that it's a cerebral exercise, it's not a body exercise at all—and specifically those who are endeavoring to sort of hold on to power, money, the white male patriarchy. I'm looking out over what was once DuPont's factories where. Literally thousands of workers used their hands and their bodies to make things, right? And so there's this sense when you talk about the earth and of classes of the lower classes and those with less are closer to the body. And you can almost get a sense of that. And these guys are just off in, you know, in the, in the state house, just doing their best to keep it upstairs, not feel what I suspect is generations of grief and trauma that if they begin to feel the Mitch McConnell start bawling behind the microphone. You know what I mean? Right. You're totally right. The way towards that, it's bucolic and pastoral, but that's only because we are of the bucolic and pastoral, right? We are just animals. (laughs) Everything in the forest is the forest, but somehow capitalism and this sort of modern contemporary culture that, you know, Bo Lozoff talked about, right? This, This depth and simplicity. The shallow and complex is capitalism, you can feel the tension we're experiencing in culture through the very framework that you've laid out.
1: It manifests in what's happening. Here's the question I want to dangle, and this is what I'm writing, writing about right now as I'm crafting this book, which is really, the book is really our story. That's what I wanted to write, which is it's not religious or scientific. It's not based on any culture or place. It's the story of life unfolding on this planet. Mm. It's not something that's debatable because we can look at the different stages. I mean, it's just how we got here, right? So in that grand experiment of life unfolding on this planet, why did we get separated? How did it come that we reached a point that's mythologized in different ways in different traditions where we became separate from the garden, from the unity? From the world of the animals and the flora and the fauna and the minerals. Why did that happen? And what was the purpose of it? And what is it leading to right now? And I think you just mentioned a number of things, right? They're not hard to discern. I mean, we've got a number of pretty critical issues (laughs) on hand right now. From the environment to socially to politically. I mean, it's not like I don't need to tell anybody, you know, if they're paying attention. Was it a mistake Is there something purposeful about it? Yeah. Is it a certain uh, developmental stage that we're in? And how should we address it? This is kind of my interest right now. And for me, there's something very purposeful about it and very elucidory about it, but it takes a little bit of a different way of framing life and contextualizing the human experience, which... We can't be that important, basically. We have to, our sense of self-importance has to drop a few notches.
0: Matt, what would you
1: tell that fourth grader today? What would you tell that little boy in the woods today? Well, I think I would say I'm right here with you. And if you trust me and you follow me, I'll show you the way home. Yeah. And what would you tell us? Well, I would say in the immediacy, the experience of, of difficulty to see if you can not judge that experience and not make yourself out to be some kind of bad person, but just see that what you're going through is probably very, very typical of the human experience. But then after that, I would say, strive and see and really dig to find a point of reference for life that's not based on thought, feeling, or sensation. Mm -hmm but on the direct experience of life itself and make that your goal and your quest and don't give up until you find it because that's the ticket. I think I get closest to that when you and me are in Valley Forge Park, bro. Well, I hope so because I hope that whatever I've done, if I've done anything worthwhile is some of that experience has become a part of me, right? I've gotten brema in my body, which is really, you want to get brema in your body And then somehow that becomes your emanation, your energy field, you know, whether you say it or not, whether you and I are talking about mundane things or relationship issues or kid stuff, there's that framework, always at play, you know, that we're having this human experience, not haphazardly, not purposelessly, but for a reason. So we can understand why we're here and how to use what we go through to find that point of reference for life. That's what we need.
0: Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.